Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Um, if you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to the book of Second Peter, Second Peter uh, chapter 1. If you're a user of the Bible app, you can open the app and find our live event and track along. And if you um, need a Bible or would prefer a Bible that you can put in your lap, there's some on the sides of the tech booth back there. Uh, feel free to do so. If you have the Bible app open, uh, you'll note that there's just a couple of verses here. And there's not a lot of uh, um, content that goes along with it. That's because the vast majority of what we're going to say today is going to show up on the screen and there was no way it was going to fit into the Bible app in any way that makes sense to anybody. So uh, get your phones out. If you need to be ready, you can take pictures of the screen whenever you want to. We'll also have a before kickoff tonight. Wait, there's a game? I didn't know. Before kickoff tonight, we will have the notes up so that you can have all of that, and uh, that'd be great. Um, Just wanted you to know that that was happening. So um, here, we're going to work our way to this passage, but I want to go ahead and read it, okay? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We ain't making this stuff up, folks. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. There's not a creative side of us that's pulling this together. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we have been working our way through these major foundational doctrines and uh, the pillars, if you will, that hold our house together. And um, as we've been doing so, we kind of did the Trinity and the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We've done the gospel. Today, we're going to talk about the Bible. This is the doctrine of the Bible. As succinctly as we could probably pull it together, it is this. The Bible is the revealed story of God redeeming the world through Jesus the Messiah. It is the revealed story of God. I couldn't have found this out on my own. And that, that story comes from God. And that story is the story of redemption. He is redeeming the world, you, me, and the world, and the cosmos. How? Through Jesus, the Messiah. Okay, so this is Doctrine of the Scriptures. We'll come back to that here shortly. Um, one of the questions that I get asked, um, often enough that it's not rare... But, I mean, not too terribly often, but, but I wanted to go ahead and speak to it, is how do we know that we can actually trust this? How do we know? My contention today is that you can, you can with confidence, trust that, like this high level of assurance, that what you read is what they wrote. That's the contention for today. Okay? Now, there are implications that will fall out of that that come right out of the second Peter here, but I want to get there first. So can we trust what God has spoken um, to reveal himself to us? And so um, anybody remember the telephone game way back in the day? Elementary school people played the telephone game, preschoolers, even more fun because they're not fully sure what any of the words mean, and they may just make them up all along the way. If you're not familiar or not quite confident that you know what I'm talking about, you start down here with person one, and maybe there's person eight or 10 or 12 over here, and somebody whispers um, in uh, person one's ear, "Um, I really like avocados. And down the chain, it gets passed down to person eight, 10, 12, and it's, um, 
I really like picking my nose. And you're like, that's not even close to what happened. Like the vocalization somewhere, get in there, avocados to picking nose. I don't know, but there it is. That's what happens. Some people think uh, that this is what has happened with the, the copies of the scriptures that we have. Because back in the day, um, they didn't have, they couldn't pull out their phones and click uh, and make a PDF of the text that Paul wrote. Uh, they couldn't run down to your favorite um, store if people still run down to the store and get mass quantities produced uh, via the copiers over there at Staples or whatever. They couldn't bump into their office and uh, put, uh, you know, a nickel or a dime or a quarter um, into a, another different kind of copy machine and make sure that that happens. Um, they had to write it out by hand. And so the question is, did they mess it up all along the way? We, to be clear, maybe this question, do, do we have, I'll ask you this question, do we have... When Paul put the pen to parchment, do we have that? No, we do not. Parchment is, um, uh, anybody remember paper grocery bags? Yeah, parchment's like that. Think about how long paper grocery bags survived at your house. Now imagine them being passed all over an entire empire and how long they would survive. Not very long. So um, these papyrus or these parchments are, are, uh, uh, you know, they, they dissolve fairly quickly. So we do not have the original copies. That's, I mean, the originals, the autographs is the technical term for it. Um, but the question is, is that how do we get from, you know, person one to, to you and to me? Can we trust what happens in there? If you survived the eighties, you survived the Jesus seminar, um, where a group of scholars got together they were supposed to be the smartest people in the room. And they said only 18% of the gospels are true. We survived that. If you survived the 90s, you survived the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, anybody remember the Da Vinci Code? Where a novelist wrote a novel and people took it as the Bible <laughs> to make the Bible into a novel. If, if you survived the, the um, 2000s, more in our particular day, uh, there's a, a guy who showed up who wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. We'll actually quote him here in just a moment, and I, we won't misquote him. Um, but he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. Bart Ehrman is his name. He's a um, textual critic scholar, and he showed up on um, late-night TV and multiple other places, interview with Jon Stewart, um, and, and raised all sorts of questions about the authenticity of the Scriptures. And so today, I just want to, before we get to this text and say, what, is, what are the implications of this? I, I want to ask the question, can we really believe what's in front of us? My contention, one more time, is what you can with confidence believe that um, what you read is what they wrote. How do you know that? Well, let's talk about the authenticity of this, okay? There's two ways to measure that. One is quantity, one is quality. Let's, let's put it in a context, though. Uh, how many of you know something about ancient Rome or ancient Greece? Just anything. It doesn't really matter what the fact is. Raise your hand real high. You just know one thing about ancient Rome and ancient Greece. That came from basically one of five guys. Here they are right here, these guys, Livy Tacitus, Suetonius, Herodotus, or Thucydides. Nobody named their kid Thucydides, right? Because if you did, that's pretty awesome. There are basically 400 surviving manuscripts, um, handwritten manuscripts from these five guys. So what we know about Rome, what we know about Greece, more or less comes from these five guys, and there's about 400. If you stack them side by side, kind of stood them up like a bookshelf, pop, 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 they would extend more or less between these two speakers, maybe a smidge short of that. Yeah? You got it? If you just put the 400 manuscripts side by side, this is the space that they would take up from the five guys that we know most of, ancient Rome and, um, 
ancient Greece about. All right? So there's context. You got all that in your brain? We're going to nerd out for a minute. Anybody with me? Just want to nerd out with me? Yes, Curtis is with me. Nerd. Let's nerd together, Curtis. I'll just talk to you and the rest of them can listen. Uh, okay, so authenticity. So that, that, that's um, ancient um, uh, history. So w- what about the New Testament? Let's just talk about the New Testament. Any guesses as to how many manuscripts are left? It's okay if you don't guess because here it comes. In Greek, there are 5,800. We have about 5,800 manuscripts. People who took what was written and they wrote it and copied it down so that they could pass it along. Um, then, uh, shortly thereafter, it was translated into Latin. Jerome translated, what's, if some of you grew up around it, the Vulgate, and translated into Latin. There's about, well, greater than 10,000 copies of those. And there's somewhere short of 10,000 other languages. You've got Aramaic and uh, Ethiopian. I mean, you've got all these, Syriac, you've got all of these other kind of languages in that region there. And, to, okay, so let's just pause right here. That means that there are 25,000 manuscripts, ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that we have. And furthermore, if we ditched all 25,000 of them, if we just burned them all in a fire, the church fathers from the 100s and 200s and 300s, the church fathers quoted the New Testament a million times in their writings. We could reproduce the New Testament from the church fathers. Crazy. So uh, you got 400 manuscripts lining up from here to here of ancient Rome and Greece. If you put the 25,000 in the same kind of using the same metric, same measurement, you know, kind of book category, you would go from here to the freeway. Everybody know where the freeway is down there. This is what we're talking about. This is in a category all by itself, people. It just is. We have an unbelievable amount of this. So, um, okay, so... What does it matter, though, that that's the case? Like, that's the quantity, thank you. What about the quality? There are two ways to measure that. One is the proximity, the closeness to which it was written, and then um, you, you, the accuracy of it. So let's do proximity. Back to our five guys, those five guys, um, those ancient historians. The closest one, the closest surviving manuscript that we have to those five fellas is 300 years. 300 years. Any guesses as to the closest um, manuscript for the New Testament. Just any guess. Just fun. I mean, you can be wrong and it's okay. How many? 30, yeah, 30 to 35 years is right. So here's the story. There's a guy named Colin Roberts and he's an intern in a library. Give it up for the interns, people. He's down in the basement filing and sorting. And he comes along um, and as he's filing and, and sorting this particular section, there, there is a loose credit card size of a papyrus in there. And he very carefully gets it and he looks at it and he's like, these words are really familiar. This looks like the gospel of John about chapter 18. Here's what Colin, the intern found. This is P52, papyrus 52, also known as Ryland's papyrus from John 18. Scholarship to that point had put the writing of John's gospel. They said it wasn't actually written by John. Uh, it was written much later, anywhere between it was the second half of the first century, uh, second half of the second century. So 160, 170, 180 in that ballpark right there, like 150 you know, years after Jesus lived, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, 
that's just, that was the scholarship. That was the thought of the day. So they take P52 and they send it off and they're like, hey, how would you date this? And they get all these replies back that say somewhere around 100, one guy, Adolf Weissman said as early as 90 AD. Previously, they thought it was like 160, 70, 80, you know, 160, 170, 180, that kind of thing. And now they're saying 90 AD. Now, this is a copy. Everybody with me? This is a copy of John 18, yes? Which means that the original was written before that, right? Like sometime in the ballpark of, well, John. Like he was, I mean, like John wrote the thing. So we've got somewhere in the ballpark of this, you know, depending upon how you count, 75 to 100 year skip that brings it back into I mean, 30 years away from when God uh, inspired the Apostle John uh, to write. So New Testament, 30 years. Uh, some of you are stressed out, though, because that's the New Testament. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about the Old Testament? I mean, the Old Testament, the oldest um, for a long time. The oldest uh, copy of the Old Testament we have was co- it's called the Masoretic Text. Um, King James was written based off of it, or translated based off of it, and all that kind of stuff. About 900 AD. Everybody say 900 AD. Okay. And so, and then this happened. There were some shepherds taking care of some stuff out in the Qumran Desert. This is where they are. They're maybe walking along the little wadi right there or something like that. And they're doing exactly what dudes who are left to themselves, who have nothing better to do, do. They're making up games, having competitions, and generally causing trouble, yeah? And so, you know, this guy's like, hey, man, I'll bet you I can hit that, uh, that little rock formation right there. Bet you can't. Sing, you know, sling it out there. Throws a rock, hits it. The guy's like, oh, yeah, well, watch this. Ring, I'm, okay, I'm going to hit that one left-handed. And so they're out there doing the things that guys do because, fellas, true or false, this is the kind of, like, if we're bored, we're going to make up something to do, yeah? Some version of competition, we're generally going to do this. Okay, this is what's happening. And so um, you see the Qumran Caves here. That's Cave 4A if I, or 4B, if I'm not mistaken. It's one of the fours. Anyway, so there's two dudes walking along, and uh, they're, sl- they're like, hey, dude, I'll, I'll bet you I can throw that up there. Throws it up there, doesn't quite make it. The other guy, because this is what guys do, like, here, hold my beer. And he's like, shing, throws it up there, and he hits it. He throws it into the cave. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to do it. Throw, throw another one up there, and it doesn't. Can, in your mind, can you create the sound of a rock just scattering down a rocky surface like, you know, t- like Plinko, right? The second guy throws his stone and it goes crack. That does not sound like a rock scattering into a cave. So they, one of them scrambles up there to see what's going on. He walks in, he's, he's hit a pot, an ancient pot. Pulls the lid off, sand, but there's another one right next to it. Pulls the lid off, there is a scroll in there. This one, the book of Isaiah. So they take the scroll, carefully handle it, make sure that it gets to the uh, antiquities people in Israel. Scroll gets dated. Do you remember the Masoretic text? What was the date? I had you say it out loud. This one is dated 100 BC. Somebody do the math. That's a thousand years, people. A thousand years. We, l- we took a jump of a millennium 
because two dudes are throwing rocks. So the question is, I mean, that's that's a pretty significant jump. The, The question, though, that follows is, okay, we've got a thousand years of the telephone game. We started with avocado. What about pick your nose, right? What's going to happen? So they started translating Isaiah 53 from, um, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's what they found. 160 words or so, give or take, in Isaiah 53 in Hebrew. There are 17 letters that are different. 17 letters. As you can see, 10 of them are spelling variations. If you spell the word like normal people, it's H-O-N-O-R, honor, yeah? If you spell the word like you're British and odd, then it's, you put a U in there, right? But everybody knows what it is and you got it. This is, the, this is that parallel. Four of them are style differences, uh, little conjunctions. In Hebrew, you can put a little thing on the end and it, it, it's a style question. Does it change meaning? Most of the time it isn't even translated. And then the last one is um, they added three letters for light. In, in Isaiah 53, they shall see or they shall see light. So a thousand years and we get 17 letters, only three of which are substantial. And even those three don't change the meaning. We started with, I like avocados. And guess what we ended with? I like avocados. Okay, so that's the Old Testament, though. What about the New Testament? Well, I'm so glad you asked. In, um, in, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, Bart Ehrman made a living, quite literally a living, number one bestseller, um, all the talk shows, made a living on saying there are more um, variations of the New Testament words than there are actual words in the New Testament. And guess what? He's right. 138,612, I think, words in the New Testament, and there are about 500,000 variations. Now, I don't know if you feel this or not, but maybe you just think to yourself, hey, Trent, earlier you said um, you can be confident that what you read is what they wrote and there are 500,000 variations. That makes me pretty squirmy in this seat that I'm in. You don't need to be squirmy in your seat because here is the rest of that story. 70% of those are spelling differences. If you speak proper English, for instance, you can put the, an N on the end of a and make the word and before a word that starts with a vowel or a vowel sound. Yeah. You with me on this? But if you grow up in East Texas, you don't need an N on the end of that. You just keep talking, right? 70% are spelling differences. No, nobody addresses that, but that's, that is the reality. And there are 500,000 variations because we have all of these manuscripts, Right. We'll, sh- we'll show you an example here in just a minute. Here, so 70%. That takes care of, but that's a good chunk. Everybody with me on this? 29% are um, uh, what are called immaterial differences. They are preferences of words. They are word order changes, synonyms. Um, if you didn't go to the cinema and you wanted to use a synonym, you didn't go to the cinema, you might go to a, a movie theater. If I said I'm going to the cinema and Curtis, since you were excited, and Curtis said he's going to the theater, would everybody understand what we're talking about? Yes, we would. 
There's no, no material change whatsoever. So somebody do math for me just real quick because I'm up on stage. The 70% and 29%, what does that equal if you add those together? Oh, 99%. There's a less than 1% that are called meaningful, but not viable. Meaningful, meaning the word itself matters. Viable in the sense of, this is not really what happened. And I'll, this is, this is the perfect example of this, and it's really funny, just truth. Okay, this is 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. Depending upon which Bible you read, it says, either we became infants, which in the Greek there is egonethemen nepioi, or... We became gentle among you. We became infants like children among you, or we became gentle among you. Egonethamen epioi. Does everybody see the difference? You see that? And you see how if your contacts got blurry and you had wiped your eyes, you might forget that you put a N at the end of one and it actually looks like it's at the beginning of the next word. Everybody see the difference, how that goes? Now, Paul is writing to the uh, first Thessalonians and he's saying, hey, look, we didn't come in like gangbusters. We came in, and very next verse says, we shared with you the gospel and our very lives. So if he's saying we became children or we became gentle, you get the idea these are basically the same thing. There is one particular, um, one particular manuscript, though, that says we became horses. Egonethamen... Hippoi. Now, again, if you and I were writing by hand, by candlelight, could we have made that mistake? Or it just didn't quite get written? This is, this is reality. There's only one or two of these, and it's kind of funny. But Paul was clearly not saying that he became a horse. Yeah? You with me on this? It is meaningful because horse is an actual word, but it's not viable. Right? And all the manuscript evidence points away from it. So that's 1%, or less than 1%. So we've done 70%, we've done 29%, we've done less than 1%. And the last 1% goes something like this. It is both meaning and viable. Um, some people, when they, these variations, it would be uh, instead of Jesus Christ the Lord, they would say Christ Jesus the Lord. That is a meaningful and viable change. But it doesn't change anything. Um, the, the, one of the greater um, evidences of this or, or examples of this uh, in Revelation 13, uh, what is it, 18, I think. The mark of the beast, everybody with me? What's the number? You can say it out loud in church. It's okay. We're not superstitious, all right? You don't have to worry about it. 666. Um, there are two manuscripts that we know of so far where, and they're ancient, like good copies, old copies, where uh, the mark of the beast is not 666, but it is 616. Anybody know what that means? Other than the fact that all those 1980s heavy metal bands, like all of their album covers are completely toasted now, like, uh, forget it, you know, that's nothing right there. Who cares if it's 666 or 616? What's the answer to that? Not too many. It's meaningful and it's viable, but what does it matter? And the answer is, it doesn't. Why? Because when we read the creed a while ago, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and one Lord Jesus Christ who um, came down from, uh, uh, from heaven, became flesh, Holy Spirit, and the Virgin Mary suffered, um, died, rose again, and the mark of the beast is 666. I mean, we didn't have that in there. Why? Because 
that's not like profoundly material to who we are. This is that. So Bart Ehrman, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, cowardly, put this in the appendix. He didn't write it in the main text. He put it in the appendix. Here's what he said. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscripts of the New Testament. He made a boatload of money off of that book. And in the appendix where nobody was going to read it, what does it say? Eh, nothing. Nothing that I've actually written about actually matters. For shame, for shame. Here's why I think that's the case. Well, let me just, let me just pause and restate my thesis. You can have confidence that what you read is what they wrote. Do you see that? Like God inspired it and he supernaturally intended the process in, pro, in his providential care to make sure that what's in front of you is what he wanted you to hear in the first place. Um, pastorally, one of the questions I get is, oh yeah, but what about, and then you name some crazy thing that happened in the Bible. It's true. There's some crazy things in the Bible, yeah? Boy, there's some crazy stuff. And just to be clear, like, I mean, in addition to all the other stuff, I mean, Elijah, uh, excuse me, Elisha calling down bears to eat the people who made fun of his bald head and all, which is, you know, all in the realm of things that are possible here. If you start talking trash about some of us who are older and losing our hair, like uh, in addition to all that crazy stuff, I just want to be clear. The thing that we confess, you and me together, the reason why we're here is that we believe a guy died and got up from the dead. I mean, that's not weird or anything, right? What about the crazy stuff that's in the Bible? But we have to, here's the, we have to let it speak to us on its own terms. We don't want to bring our 21st century Western American suburban context into the Bible and go, okay, so now, now you can speak to me on my terms. You don't go to a foreign country and be a bad tourist. You step into this. You step into this and say, all right, I, I want to know what's going on here. I, the reason I put all this and the reason Ehrman, I think, says what he says in the appendix, <laughs> it's a joke, is because our, our issue is not with authenticity. Our issue is with authority. This is Peter's challenge in Second Peter chapter 1. People are spinning up all sorts of craziness so that they can live the way that they want to. And Peter comes along, look again in verse 20 and says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You, you can't bend what God says to your own plan, to your own will, to your own desires, and then say, see, God's going to let me do what I want to do. He's pretty patient, but you are not going to outweigh him for him to change his mind. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let's just be clear here. When we talk about authority, God has spoken. 
They spoke from God. So that the words that we have here, they came from a place. They came from God. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says um, that the scriptures are, all scriptures are inspired by God. God breathed them through um, the, these men. So God has spoken. It is resonant. It is not an echo. It is not some response to what he saw going on in the world. God spoke and he told us the things that he wanted us um, to know. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is a clear and it is a present word to us. It was not written to us. Second Peter wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. It is a clear and present word for us today. And he spoke in our language for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. Men spoke. So Peter writes a certain way. And when you read Peter, he writes that way. Matthew wrote a certain way. Paul wrote a certain way. David composed poems a certain way. The, the, the people who um, um, you know, pull, pulled all of this together, 40 different authors over um, 1,500 years, three continents, three languages, 66 books. God used their personalities to speak. This is normal. God has spoken, and he's done so in our language. Why? Why? To reveal himself. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us that, that the Spirit of God, like his primary ministry here is to make sure that we get pointed to Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's pointing us. God spoke, and it was an authoritative word. And he spoke in a way that we could hear it and understand it. It is in our language, and he spoke to reveal himself. Just pastorally, um, as I said, most of our problem... It's not with this authenticity. It's with our authority. It's with his, its authority in our lives. Hey God, uh, thanks so much for giving me this today. Thanks so much for helping me read that today. I don't want to go do it. Okay. Um, I, I'm a venture here for just a moment. I think the reason some of us are bored in our spiritual life is because we refuse to do what we read. Because the scriptures are meant to be not just read and ingested. They're also meant to be experienced. And so we have the opportunity to live this out. And the more we live this out, the more we do what it says, the more we go, he was right about that. And the more we say he was right about that, the more we experience the things that God has spoken to be true. The, the Bible is not authoritative because it's authentic. Don't reverse those. It's authentic because God spoke the author, authoritative word and saw fit to bring it down for you and for me. He preserved all of this stuff so that you and I can know about, about who he is and what he's done. Why? Why would he do so? Anybody uh, remember Gary Chapman, Five Love Languages? Anybody with me on this? Yeah. Later, uh, Chapman said, there may be 20, I don't know, but five sounded good and it made a good book. That's true. I mean, like, perfect. The the major lesson, though, is if I'm in a relationship, like I am with my wife, right? And and I've got the, the love language of physical touch. If I reach out and hold her hand as an expression of my love for her, 
and her love language is acts of service, then my hand-holding might be nice, but it's not really all that loving. If I get in there and wash the dishes, she knows that she's loved. The key inside of the book is I have a language that I normally speak, but in order to love this person well, I have to learn to speak their language. Why would God inspire a book in human language and see fit that it is preserved all the way down through these centuries, millennia even? Because he's a good communicator and he knows how to speak your love language. He's speaking human. And he wants you to know just how much he loves you. Sometimes we pick up the Bible Teenagers, listen, sometimes we pick up the Bible and it makes no sense to us. That still happens to me at 49, folks. I just don't get it. I'm willing to believe it, but boy, I don't understand it. But that doesn't change the fact that God in his love has spoken and he has spoken to you and he has spoken to me to reveal himself, to tell you of his love for you. So, Close with these three questions. If, if, I know, if I know this about God, how do I grow into this? Is there something, number one, is there something that I should obey? I pick up the Bible, I read it. I hope you pick up the Bible and read it this week. Is there something that I should obey? Secondly, is there something then that I should surrender? God, if there's something I need to give up, I will do so. And lastly, is there something that I long to experience and all I'm looking for is an opportunity to see this as a reality? Like with my own eyes, with my own ears, with my own, um, like I can feel it with my senses. I can see this as a reality. You ask the question, God, I, I see this happening. I want to experience this. Is there something I should obey? Is there something that I should surrender? Is there something I long to experience? If you're here this morning, I don't know what you think about what we've all done here. We've nerded out quite a bit. But here's what I do know. I do know that there is a God in heaven who spoke your language in order to communicate his love for you. And the best thing you could do today is to put your trust in him. If you've never given your life to him, today, today can be the day that you receive Jesus. The forgiveness and the freedom that he offers. So give us a moment here. We'll pray together. These questions will stay up on the screen for a minute. Just let you soak these in and maybe you need to ask the questions. Excuse me. And um, there's an answer that gets prompted in you by the spirit. Maybe you need to respond. I'll be at the back and be happy to pray with you if you uh, would like someone to pray with you or if you want to talk more about what it means to know and follow Jesus. This is your opportunity to do so. Let's, let's just take a moment here, settle in, and then I'll offer a prayer for us. Thank you, Father, for your word today. Um, there are parts that are confusing, but it's not as if it's not clear. You have spoken f- to us. You've given your word. It is for us today. And so I pray that you would help us 
to be recipients of it. Help us to receive it. Don't let it get snatched away. Don't let the cares of the world choke it out. Uh, Don't don't let the hardships that we might be in right now or may have to face this week uh, burn it up. May we be the people of good soil that help it grow. The context in which it becomes a living and active thing in us for the sake of those around us. We give all of this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.